There was one particular zoo I was reminded of. It was a zoo that was going through financial difficulty. And one of their, their chief exhibits actually died. The gorilla cage. The gorilla cage is a lot of publicity surrounding this gorilla. Folks would come to see him. And they couldn't really afford to, to go out and to find, to acquire, to get the new gorilla. So they actually got large fellows on the staff there to put on a gorilla suit. <laughs> he put on a gorilla suit and he, and he climbed into the cage. And, and it turned out he was pretty good at it. And he would uh, climb up on the, the tire swing, and he'd swing, and he'd beat his chest, and he'd, he'd march all around all, all through. And the people would, would cheer, and they'd, they'd applaud, and they'd gather to watch the show, and he'd swing, and he'd get braver and braver, and he'd swing in this tire swing back and forth, back and forth, until one day when those gloves on that clumsy costume he was wearing slipped and gave way, and he flew actually over the bars uh, right into the lion enclosure. There, when he found, he found himself face to face with uh, this large lion right there, and he began to scream, help me, help me, let me out of here, I'm not a gorilla, get me out of here, help me, help me. And the people are kind of shocked, and, and so the man turning looked at the lion, and the lion looked at him and said, shh, shh, if they find us out, we'll both lose our jobs. <laughs> the, uh, the picture there, we, we laugh at, but the picture there is, is a picture of of really of insincerity, of hypocrisy even, the picture of, of being something on the outside but something entirely different on the inside. Um, just a week ago, Rex and I were at um, Presbytery, and uh, the, the pastor that was uh, presenting a very fine sermon on humility and coming before the Lord with sincerity and honesty, um, he talked about one RUF pastor who decided this year he was going uh, trick-or-treating dressed as himself because there's nothing truly as terrifying as really examining and being yourself. I thought, I don't like that. I don't like that. I'd much rather wear a suit. I'd much rather wear a mask. I'd, I'd much rather put on airs where others would think highly. I'd much rather pretend to be something I'm not. The passage we're looking at is is Jesus dealing with the temple. Dealing with the temple. It's in the middle of the passage that we dealt with a couple of weeks ago, the fig tree. Remember the fig tree? They go away from it. They come back and the fig tree is cursed. It dies. It withers. And we we talked about that. But right here in the midst of it is one of the three synoptics where they they talk about the, uh, the cleansing of the temple. One of two occasions. Uh, early, John speaks about it early in ministry, uh, and this is late, obviously, in the, uh, uh, the week leading up to his crucifixion that Jesus comes and cleanses uh, the temple. If you look back in the Old Testament, uh, in the book of Malachi, remember Malachi, that book right before the closing of the Old Testament canon? In the book of Malachi, uh, in Malachi chapter 2, it, the prophet Malachi goes on and on and on uh, about what was happening among the priests the leaders there, the offerings that they are offering before God, the insincerity with which they are offered, the hypocrisy, the defilement that was really there. Malachi said this, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. 
This is a prophetic statement that has been understood to be a promise of what Jesus would do when he came. Handel, when he wrote his masterwork, The Messiah. Right in the middle of that is a great bass oratorio in the midst of it. And, and the bass sings out that he is like a refiner's fire. This is a promise of the work of Jesus. And what does that refining do? It purifies that which is impure within, but it also reveals truly what the substance is. This experience in the temple this morning is very easy to dismiss, and we'll talk about that. Dismiss in a couple of categories, but I encourage you this morning to, with an open heart, listen to God's Word and be teachable by His Spirit. Teachable by His Spirit as we examine that which has been called the temple of the Holy Spirit, that is, our lives and our hearts. This is God's Word. It's Mark chapter 11. Uh, We begin in verse 15, in just a few verses here this morning. Please read along with me. The they, by the way, is Jesus and His disciples. And they came to Jerusalem, and He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and who bought in the temple. And He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, But you have made it to be a den of robbers. The chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking for a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And then when the evening came, uh, they went out of the city. Pray with me. Lord, in this passage of Scripture, I pray, Lord God, that we would not dismiss a familiar scene because of its familiarity. Lord, that we would not be quick to come to a conclusion about what is being taught here. And Father, certainly, that easy conclusion that what is being taught here is for someone else. May you teach us, Lord. May it make an impression in each each heart in this room that your word would be heard, that Jesus would be seen, that your glory would be a little brighter Father, as the scales fall from our eyes, as we see the light, the goodness of your word before us here today, we thank you, Lord God, that your word does not wither or fade, but endures forever. Amen. So I said, this this particular passage of Scripture is one that we'll run to a lot of times, sometimes to talk about the nature of Jesus. You know, and, we, and rightly so, there's some truth in this, that idea that so often Jesus is painted as kind of a milk toast, kind of little mamby-pamby, kind of wimpy kind of guy. And, and certainly, certainly one who could, could go into the temple and accomplish this was, was a powerful man. But it's not, it's not a story about how strong Jesus was. It's not a, it's not a story that's particularly focused on the idea of, of righteous indignation or that, that anger is no sin when it's prompted by an offense to the glory of God. These, these are true. These are facts. But when we look at it, we say, okay, it's all right. Every now and then if I get angry, I'll run to this passage and say, Jesus got angry, so we're all good here. Or we might say, well, it's obviously a story about Jesus running some people out of the temple who didn't need to be there. This idea that somehow people came and invaded the temple from the outside. 
came and, and came into that place and really should not be there. But if you examine the text very carefully, even very, very quickly, you'll see that indeed it was those who should have been there, but what was occupying their hearts was not indeed what ought to be there. This is an insider struggle. This is sin in the house of God. When you look at the person of Jesus as he came into the temple, we always have to, to, to look and ask, what is it that Jesus is concerned about? Where is Jesus' heart in this matter? What is the greatest concern of our Savior? And we could ask ourselves, looking at the life of Jesus, what is the greatest concern of Jesus? Is it the way that the priests wash their hands? There's a great deal of discussion about the way, the proper way to wash, the proper way to be made clean. Was that what Jesus was most concerned about? Walking around making sure that people, the people wash their hands right? Or was it that people would wear the, the right clothes when they came to the house of God? Was Jesus' greatest concern in today's way of characterizing things that they sang certain hymns? That they sang certain hymns with certain instrumentation or at certain tempos? Was, their greatest, was his greatest concern that you don't take more than a certain number of steps on the Sabbath day or certainly don't do these, these forbidden things on the Lord's day? Was this his greatest concern? We, we say no. So very clearly you look at Jesus, the greatest concern was the heart of those. His heart went out to them because of what he saw in their heart. Jesus' heart would go out to those who, who thought that sin was, was coming upon them, that defilement was coming from the outside. And what he was saying is, you need to, to root it out in your heart. You need to examine what's there. If we look at this passage about the cleansing of the temple, I want us to, to focus just a, a bit about the idea that what is going on in the midst of the temple there in that day is religious hypocrisy. Rank religious hypocrisy. They've gathered for public worship. They've gathered to go through the motions of religious life. But they don't live their life in the temple or outside the temple in a way that was bringing glory to God. They, they were men in gorilla suits until they were face to face with the lion and found themselves, but this was no insincere lion in a costume. This is the Lion of Judah. This is our Savior that they find themselves face to face with. We see them in the temple. And what they have done, they come into the temple and they busy themselves with the activities of the temple. They rush and they hurry, but they fail to worship. And they also do worse. They prevent others from worshiping as they ought. Now, that must have been a stark thing to, to, for Jesus to look at what he saw. When he saw the temple, but then he saw the darkness that was going on inside. Now, the temple in that day was, was something special. The Herodian temple would have been amazing to see. I think of, of places and sites that we've all seen in our travels. Uh, Josephus, a historian in that day, this is what he wrote about coming into Jerusalem and seeing the temple. Here's, here's just his description of it and what it would have been like to look at the temple in that day. The exterior of the building, it lacked nothing that could astonish either the soul or the eyes. For it was covered on every side with massive plates of gold. And the sun had no sooner risen that it radiated so fiery a flash that those straining to look at it had to avert their eyes as if from the sun itself. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance that it was a snow-clad mountain because whatever 
was not overlaid with gold, was of the purest white. This temple was something to see. Beautiful and splendid. These massive outer walls looking one direction to Bethesda, another direction across the Kidron Valley, the Garden of Gethsemane to Mount Olivet. You'd see the lower city in one place, the upper city in the others. You'd come into it and you'd see these massive uh, marble pillars there, Solomon's Colonnade, and you'd come into this area. It's called the Court of the Gentiles. And it was where all could come into that place and to hear the things of God. The court of the Gentiles. That meant that Jew and Gentile alike could come to this place. Now as you proceeded further and further into the temple, you'd come to the court of Israel. You'd come to the court of the ladies through the beautiful gate. Ladies, you wouldn't have any problem going through the beautiful gate to get to the court of the ladies, right? But then you'd proceed on and you'd have the the court of the priests. You'd have the holy place and the holy of holies. Just continue to work into it. And we do know in our theology that at the death of Jesus and the veil being split in two, that that holy of holies, that, that place where the high priest would enter in only once a year, that, 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 place, that place became open for Jesus entered into the holy place, not made with hands, but into heaven itself. But right there in that court of the Gentiles, the court just inside uh, those massive outer walls, This place where all nations ought to be able to come and to hear about the true and the living God. It had become a market. It had become a convenience. It had become a place where people could get what they wanted. Now, temple merchants, they would gather in there and they would buy concessions from the priests. The priest would sell them concessions uh, to allow them to buy and sell in the temple. There was a franchise fee. And, and they were given permission then to buy and sell animals, for instance, talks about the birds and, and other animals as well. Otherwise, as you traveled for many, many miles, many, many days or weeks to come to Jerusalem, you would have to bring your own animal with you. And you did so at great risk. You'd have to bring all the hay and food and things that you'd have to bring to sustain your animal Uh, lest he become blemished and unsuitable on the way. And you'd always run the risk that when you got there, that the priest would look and say, oh, that animal's unacceptable. And so you've, you've done all this. So it actually became a convenience that people would sell you an animal for sacrifice there in the temple. And so the buyers and the sellers alike, their hearts were beginning to, uh, to get a bit calloused over in their relationship and what was going on, this idea that, that there would be a sacrifice because of sin, the reality and the difficulty the difficulty of dealing with sin. Looking for an easy way to deal with sin. An easy way to, uh, to just make this, this payment for the wrong that you've done. Now in anticipation of what had to be accomplished for our sin, that indeed was dark. For what had to be done to deal with our sin? What had to be done was the very Son of God had to endure hell for me. No easy task. No convenient path, no shortcut through the cross. So the buyers and the sellers, the buyers, uh, they found convenience in being able to come and get a right animal for the sacrifice. They also had to, by the way, if they were bringing with them Egyptian money or Roman money, they had to exchange that. There was a half-shekel temple tax they had to pay. had to be paid in Jewish coin. So you would find these money changers sitting cross-legged on the floor behind a table right there in that court of the Gentiles. It was a nice pass-through place as people would use it as a shortcut. And they would exchange money for a fee. People were extorted, but people were also looking for easy ways to come and to deal with the business with God and be done with it. 
So this, the court of the Gentiles, had become this place of convenience, of shortcut, of ease, of trying to just, just deal with things and to be done with it. Religion had become, in its practice, a means of convenience, of social advancement, of financial gain. It wasn't, as I said earlier, it wasn't that invaders had come into the house of God. It's that the people of God had forgotten what they were there for. They were distracted by other things. So our Savior comes to them. And how does He deal with this? He comes in and He says, uh, He quotes from the prophet Jeremiah. We find this passage, flip with me if you will, back to Jeremiah chapter 7, uh, 7 beginning in verse 8. I encourage you to look at this passage because uh, this is where Jesus is making reference and then there will be one other place in Isaiah that He pulls from in dealing with, with what's going on and what He sees in the temple. Keep in mind as he's looking in this beautiful temple, he's seeing the darkness of what's going on there. And he is concerned because their hearts are wrong. And because their hearts are wrong, their actions have become godless. What he does is he quotes Jeremiah 7, beginning in verse 8. He says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come... And stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. You see, Jeremiah is indicting the people and speaking about, you have made this not a house of God, but a hangout for thieves. For what you're looking to do is to steal the things of this world for your own gain, to pursue the gods of your own passions, your own desires, your own lives, and then come here and say, because I have come and done my few minutes in the temple, I am delivered. So Jesus, as He looks at this, He is filled with a righteous indignation. He is filled with an anger because this is not the intent of God in worship. This is not what it means to come into His presence, to deal with our sinfulness and His holiness. It is not the way the people should be being led, and it is not the way that they should be following. Jeremiah is indicting the people in this passage because they're living like pagans, and then they're coming to the temple, and they're going through the motions of worshiping God, and they're claiming to be faithful in those few moments. They're putting on that suit. But what's on the inside? They're worshiping themselves, they're worshiping their own wills, they're worshiping their own ways, and then they gather and they go through the motions and say, it's all good. Religious hypocrisy is real. It's real. It was real in the day of Jeremiah, it was real in the day of Jesus, and it is real today, my friends. And it is no less grievous. Even as we consider that it is forgivable in Christ. I'm reminded about one, one pastor's response when he was talking to a man about coming to church, inviting him to come into worship. And he says, would you please come and, and worship with me and my family this Sunday? And he says, oh, I'm not going to go to church. Oh, the church is it's so full of hypocrites. And the pastor smiled. He says, oh, we're not full yet. there's always room for one more. Because we we do know the reality of that. Yes, 
we, we do realize that there is hypocrisy in each of us. There, there is that that we say and that which we do. There is that that we do outwardly. There is that which we think. In, there is inconsistency. The Apostle Paul addressed this as I prayed earlier. Romans 7, he says, I know the things I should do and I don't do them. I know the things I shouldn't do and I find myself doing that. And he cries out to God, O wretched man that I am, who will free me? Deliver me from this body of death. The wonderful thing is he then proceeds into Romans 8 and he says, that it is the Lord Jesus Christ that delivers us from that body of death. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That is, we are not condemned in our hypocrisy, but we need to address the reality of it. You understand that? That we are not condemned in our hypocrisy, that it too is washed in the blood of Jesus if we have laid it before Him in confession, if we have turned to Jesus Christ in faith. It is forgivable, but still we pray that the Lord would root it out the Lord Jesus would overturn the temples, the tables in the temple of our heart. I ask you this morning, where's your heart as you're in worship here today? And I ask you too, where's your heart tomorrow? Where will it be? Where's your heart as you gather in worship? Is it doing the busyness of religious things that we would sit back and say, oh, I'm all, boy, you'll, you'll rarely find somebody as religiously active as me. It's very easy to get that. Now, the solution is not to stop being active. The solution is not to say, I'm just going to stop doing things. The the solution is to recognize that whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, I do it for the glory of God. And in the simple and the profound things I do, I do it that God would be praised. Where's my heart as I'm in worship? Am, Am I looking... Am I looking perhaps for that convenient path of saying, this is the path that I might take, that I would do that which is required so that I would basically be a good religious, moral kind of person? Our questions can be full of things like that. We, we ask, you know, about, about giving. How much should I give? Should I tithe on my net or my gross? You know, should I, uh, if, if, if somebody else has already given on the money and if I give on it, do I have to do asking questions about basically how can I come up with the most convenient path through my life as a Christian in such a way that I'm not going to make God angry? And that's not at all the attitude of a Christian who ought to be, Lord, show me today how much more I can serve you and how much closer I can draw to you today. That it is not looking for the most convenient path into the temple. It is, it is looking for the, the way to, to draw closer and closer to Jesus. To deal with our sins. To embrace His righteousness. To love His glory. And to say it is good to be in the house of the Lord. And it is good to go forth praising His name. So I ask you, where is your heart? Even as we're sitting here, sitting under His word, preparing to come to the table. And the second question I ask you is this. Where will your heart be tomorrow as you leave this place, as you take off your Sunday best and put on your Monday worst? whatever it is that you put on. Where will your heart be? And how, how will others see the life that you, that you live? What witness will you take as you go forth in the name of Jesus? Do your neighbors see you this day gathering for worship, leaving your house for Sunday morning worship, but they also walk you, watch you walking in rank hypocrisy through the rest of the week? Do your co-workers know you to be a regular churchgoer, but also know you to be a self-seeking a dishonest and ill-tempered or unreliable employee? Where, where is your heart in your life? Is there that consistency inside and out, having been refined as by Jesus for His glory 
and our blessing. As I said, there is a degree of hypocrisy in all of us and will be until glory. But we pray that the Lord would continue to refine that and refine that. I have to say, very, very ignorant of the idea of refining gold and metals, but I've watched Discovery Channel specials on it. And you can YouTube it all day long and watch metals get heated up again and again and again and again until all the dross, until all the waste is consumed and more and more and more refined. And we think about our lives as the Lord continues to work on us that He does refine and He does root out that hypocrisy, does root out that dross in the midst of the gold of our redeemed lives in Jesus. As I said, Jesus quotes two prophets here though. Two prophets, and and praise be to God in the midst of this is what we would see of Jesus showing righteous anger. There is such a wonderful statement of His compassion and His care. For two things we see. In verse 17 it says, He was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? He wasn't shouting at them and wagging His finger at them. It says, He was teaching them. And what was He teaching them? He was teaching them from God's Word. It's written, My house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. You've made it to be a den of robbers. That den of robbers reference coming from Jeremiah, but the other passage from Isaiah 56. So if you're still in that section in Jeremiah, just flip back a few pages with me. Isaiah 56. Just just four verses there. Oh, it's wonderful that that the Savior in the midst of this, that He's not walking through just to bring utter condemnation, but He's coming through with hope and a promise of deliverance of salvation. Isaiah 56, beginning in verse 3. This is where the Savior gets the other part of what He says. He says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself say to the Lord, excuse me, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from His people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Do you hear the promise in this? Isaiah continues, the Lord speaking through him says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house shall be a house of prayer for all people. So what he's doing is he's quoting this this promise and saying that the Lord will draw from every tribe and tongue, from from those foreigners, from the eunuchs, those who would would have no covenant family, no progeny of their own, they would have have no uh, future and inheritance but they would come and know a name that's even better than that of sons and daughters, an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. The good news is this, that our Savior's desire is not ultimately to drive hypocrites from the house of God, but to drive hypocrisy from the temple of our hearts. You hear that? It is not ultimately that we would leave this day and say all hypocrites are not welcome back here next Sunday because you would have nobody preaching to no one. But it's that the Lord in His love, would drive hypocrisy from our hearts, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so as we come to the table, we come to meet our Savior. He knows our inconsistency. He knows our hypocrisy. And what He desires to overturn is not us, 
but it's those things that hold our sway, our attention. He knows the desire of our hearts, and you know why? Because bottom line, the eternal and righteous desire of our hearts, He put there. He knows it because He put it there. He put it there. I desire to be more like Jesus. And He he makes way that that court, that that court would be available for praise, for worship, that we would draw near to God. I pray this morning, if you find yourself struggling, struggling with with hypocrisy, struggling with with saying one thing, living another way, or even just not not even saying it at all, but living a way just completely conformed to your own desires and your own passions, that let this be the day that you cry out to God and say, Lord, I would desire that that place that you've promised the Holy Spirit to reside, that is the temple of my heart, that it would be clean and clear, that it would be consistent and pure, that it would be that place of prayer where I, who was once far off, have been brought near, that I would be in your presence, that I would praise you with all that I am. Pray with me now. Lord God, we thank you that you have built the foundation of your church, the trueness of the gospel message. Father, that you built it firmly upon Jesus Christ. Father, we see that the house in that day was out of order. And Lord, we find so many ways today that our our tables need to be tossed aside. Lord, that we would seek to do business with you well. Father, forgive us for living lives of inconsistent worship and praise, to say one thing and to think another, to sing one thing and to do something else. Would you make us more like our Savior through and through? And Lord God, may you be praised in the worship that we bring through Jesus our Lord. Amen.